The text we're looking at is Luke 4, um, verses 1 to 13. I printed this for you on the notes sheet if you want to follow along there, or of course you could look it up in the Bible if you'd like the context. I'll read the text for us. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the gospel of the Lord. And like I said in the intro to the service, this is one of the, I think, most intriguing and profound texts in the scripture. So rather than give you some catchy intro as to why you should pay attention, I'm just going to dive right into the text. If you want to follow along and take some notes, they're on the notes sheet for you. If you need to make circles or underlines or highlights or little notes on the side, that's the place to do that. Once we walk through the text and see what's going on there, we'll have some application points at the end of the text. The first thing we need to look at is the context of this passage. If you were to back up into Luke chapter 3, you would see that the story that precedes this temptation of Jesus is Jesus' baptism. And we didn't study it this year in the Gospel of Luke because we just studied it last year in Mark's Gospel, but maybe you remember the story. Jesus goes down to the Jordan River. John the Baptist is there. He baptizes Jesus, and the sky is ripped open. God the Father bellows down, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased, and the Holy Spirit is present as a dove. From there, we go directly to this text, which the beginning of it reads this way. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The first thing to notice here is just the hard left turn from Jesus' baptism. After my baptism, there was a party, maybe for yours also, But after Jesus' baptism, he gets sent out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Not exactly a celebratory moment for him. But this is very instructive for us. If we remember back to the Old Testament book of Exodus, God's people were enslaved in Egypt. God sent a deliverer, Moses, to bring them out of slavery. They crossed through the waters of the Red Sea where all of their enemies were destroyed, and then they spent 40 years in the wilderness before going to the promised land. And Jesus is recapitulating that story in this moment. As Jesus is baptized, as he passes through the water, he immediately goes out into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. And in the same way that in those 40 years that God's people were um, lacking in resources and home and relationship like they wished they could have, Jesus was lacking food entirely. 
Now, at the end of 40 days, Jesus doesn't go into a promised land because instead of going to a promised land for himself, he is earning one for us. But you can see this narrative is being mirrored by Jesus as he lives out this part of his life. And the same is true for us. We ought to think of the Christian life like a wilderness because the book of Exodus teaches us that and Jesus' life teaches us that. That after we are baptized, after we are brought into the Christian faith, we are immediately sent out into the wilderness. We might call it life. And in life, many of the same things that are true of the wilderness years for God's people are true for us. First of all, there is no proper home God's people wandered for 40 years. They'd set up camp somewhere and then pick up camp and go somewhere else. And the same is true for us. Though we might live in the same city or even the same house for the majority or all of our lifetime, this is not our true home. We're not supposed to get comfortable here. We're not supposed to go on autopilot in this life. I know this. I've moved 15 times in the last 18 years. I never get settled anywhere. In fact, uh, here in Mississauga is the longest I've lived in any one place since I was in grade school. I know that when you're moving constantly, things just are unsettled. You try to figure out routines. You try to figure out where you're going to buy your groceries or, or do your banking, or you have to change your addresses with all the different things you've signed up for. It's a hassle to be on the move constantly. Nothing is on autopilot. But the same is true for God's people in life. We don't live on autopilot. We live constantly thinking about, what does it mean to repent today? What sins do I need to confess to God and by the power of his Holy Spirit aim to change in my life? I cannot go on autopilot. Also, in the wilderness, God's people were lacking the resources that they might have had in their previous life. In fact, there are places in the Old Testament account of Exodus where God's people say to God, hey God, can we go back to Egypt? They had way better food there. This manna and quail that you keep giving us is kind of getting bland, despite the fact that when they were in Egypt, they were enslaved. And the same thing is true for Christians. We necessarily live with less than the resources that we might otherwise be afforded. If you are living out God's command to be generous with the ministry of gospel through your church and be generous with your neighbors, you necessarily are going to be living on less than your income. And if you you take that principle that God gives us of sacrificial giving, it's not from your surplus that you give, but actually so that you have to live lower than you might otherwise be able to live. We have fewer resources. And even so, we are tempted. Tempted to go back to the slavery of having more things. Right, if only I could have that item, or only I could be a little bit richer, or only my retirement could be a little bit more um, full, we're tempted. Even if life was actually not better, the Israelites wanted to go back to Egypt. And in the same way, God says, actually, being generous and living with less is a more blessed life, but how quickly we are tempted to more than that. So Jesus is recapitulating this uh, idea of the the life of the Christian in the wilderness for us. But there's one other thing I want us to notice, and it's the fact that Satan tempts Jesus at this time in his life. Jesus is about 30 years old at this point, and we get no accounts of Satan coming to tempt Jesus before this moment. So why does Satan come right here? Um, Of course, it's not explicit in the text, but I think implicit that Jesus' baptism for some reason was significant to Satan. 
And it makes sense if you understand baptism the way the scriptures do, that when you are baptized, you are set apart and filled with the Holy Spirit to be one of God's children. Now, Jesus already was God's son, but that christening, if you will, that Christing of him in his baptism sets him apart to be the Messiah, at which point he becomes a real threat to Satan's power. Satan gets it, so Satan goes after him. But the same is true for us. Baptized into God's family, filled with the Holy Spirit, we immediately become a threat to Satan and his power. Because the word of God is coursing through us and coming out of our mouths, and that word has power, like you read in Hebrews, to be like a two-edged sword. And so Satan sets his scope on every one of us, just like he did on Satan, or on Jesus, excuse me. In fact, if you are a Christian, Satan is going after you harder than he would go after anybody else because, well, everyone else, he's God. But you're a threat. And so Satan comes hard with his temptations at you to try to pull you away from Jesus. And so the Christian life is not just a wilderness of life, but also the presence of Satan regularly tempting me. What I'd like us to meditate on for a second is whether we struggle or not against Satan. I pressed on this last week in in our text about the transfiguration, but a Christian ought to be constantly struggling against Satan's temptations. In fact, if you're not struggling against Satan's temptations, if you can't feel that presence of his evil desires around you constantly, maybe he already has you. I mean, wouldn't that be the beautiful thing in Satan's mind? That you would live out your life pretending to be or at least believing you are a Christian when you're not, because you don't struggle against sin. Now, it's going to look different in every person's life, but the point is this. Christians are repentant people. We are constantly acknowledging our sin, repenting of it, confessing it to God, and then looking to live a different life. That is the life in this battle that we have against Satan. So Satan comes to to Jesus to tempt him, and he gives him three temptations. The first of those is he comes to Jesus and says, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. The first part I want you to focus on is that if you are the son of God phrase. What are arguably the last audible words Jesus has heard before this moment? You are my son whom I love. Right, the way the text is written, he is at the Jordan, he is baptized, and then immediately goes out into the wilderness. And so it's very possible the last thing Jesus heard was, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And then Satan comes to him and says, if you are the son of God. Why? Because... Well, there was this beautiful, glorious moment where Jesus is baptized and the sky is ripped open, all of this fanfare for this man, and now he's been in the wilderness for over 40 days. It's as if Satan comes to him and says, hey, you remember that time when daddy was so proud of you? Are you sure he's still proud of you? You're out in the wilderness. You haven't eaten in 40 days. Are you sure you're the son of God? Now, of course, Satan, or Jesus doesn't give in to Satan here, but how quickly do we give in to that exact same temptation, right? Does Satan come to us and say, you're a Christian. I mean, how could this be happening to you? I mean, I thought God cared about you, like he loved you and protected you, and all this bad stuff is happening to you? Are you sure you're a Christian? Maybe there's something wrong with God. Like, maybe that God that you believe in, he's not real, or at least he doesn't have the time to watch over your life. Or maybe, maybe the problem's with you. I mean, honestly, that sin that you keep going back to, Jesus can't have that in his kingdom. Maybe he's ghosting you because he's fed up. 
how quickly we fall into that same temptation to doubt our salvation. Of course, Jesus doesn't give in to it. But there's a second part to this temptation. Satan comes to Jesus and says, tell, uh, tell this stone to become bread. Now on the surface, not such a bad thing, right? Bread is a good gift from God. And Jesus has already been through the 40 days, so he's already fulfilled this wilderness wandering type that, that the Old Testament people had pictured for us. I mean, at this point, there really doesn't seem to be any reason why he couldn't actually make a stone into bread and eat something. Uh, but there are a couple things wrong with this temptation, a couple reasons why this is really sneaky on Satan's part. The first of those is that it's not trusting the word of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who led Jesus out into the wilderness. And for all we know, Jesus just knew I'm supposed to go out into the wilderness. Maybe he didn't even know for how long or didn't know what was going to happen after those 40 days in the wilderness. He was simply going on what the Holy Spirit had told him because, well, the Holy Spirit is God and he trusts God. And so while circumstances might be communicating to Jesus, it's probably fine to make some stones into bread. Jesus continues to go on, if God hasn't said it, I will not do it. He trusts the word of God. The second part of this is that it's using his power for himself. If you look through Jesus' life, he always does miracles for somebody else. He never does them for himself. And what Satan is tempting him here to do is a miracle for himself. He has the resources, and yet he doesn't choose to do it. Because God is a God of generosity. He is not a God who works for himself, but always is giving to us. And the third thing that's wrong with Satan's temptation is that he's tempting Jesus to go to creature comforts. Right? Jesus has had a really tough last 40 days. If you know anything about recovery programs, he was three of the four or five characteristics of a person who will make a really dumb decision. You ever heard this HALT acronym? Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and some people add bored in there. He's at least hungry, lonely, and tired. And he says, Satan says to him, you could just have this bread. It'd be fine. It would fill your stomach. But Jesus doesn't give in. In fact, Jesus' answer is that man shall not live on bread alone. Now we get a short version of this in Luke, but in Matthew, we get the whole quote. Matthew's gospel says, Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus' answer is, before I need creature comforts, before I need to use my power. I just need to trust the word of God. Of course, Jesus doesn't give in to this temptation, but how quickly do we? Right, if we look back at this list, first of all, how quick are we not to trust the word of God? To not trust that God has said enough for us. We want something in this world. We want companionship or wealth or success or a good reputation or sexual fulfillment or control in life. But rather than saying, I'll look to what God has said about those things. We make compromises and we go after those things. We're never satisfied with what God says. And how quickly we use our power for ourselves. We have resources, time, money, energy, empathy. But we first of all often use those things for ourselves. And even when we do use them for other people, we often use them for other people in order to benefit ourselves. Have you ever done this? You say something like, I've been working so hard for everyone else in my life, I just need some time for me. 
Or someone's just got to acknowledge that I've been working this hard at this thing. You realize you're not doing it for them. You're doing it to build up your own ego. How quickly we use our own power, our own resources for ourselves, and then finally going to creature comforts. How quickly we do that. When we've had a hard day, or a hard week, or a hard two years, how quickly we look to anything other than the word of God to comfort us. Whether it's a drink, or a smoke, or shopping, or TV, or pornography, or whatever it is, we go there to find comfort rather than to the word of God, to pray the Psalms, to meditate on those words, to fill us up. Jesus would say the same thing to us that he says to Satan, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I think we need to meditate on that, especially in this season of life. What is Jesus essentially saying? He's essentially saying a person does not live because their physical needs are met, but because they have God's word. I think there are some right now who are afraid of getting sick. And because they're afraid of getting sick, they are neglecting God's word. They're neglecting God's word in worship every Sunday, and they're neglecting God's word in sacrament, the Lord's Supper. You need to meditate on this. Man does not live because his physical needs of health are met, but because he has the word of God. And some of us are worried about getting somebody else sick. We're worried that if we're present around other people, we might carry a, a disease to them. We need to meditate on these words. Because if we're protecting someone physically, we'd better also be preaching the word of God to them every time we see them. Because a human being does not live because their health needs are met, but because their spiritual needs are met in God's word. Or what about convenience, sleep, rest? It's so easy to say, you know what, I don't have to go to church every Sunday, or I can just watch online. If you're watching online, we're thankful that you're here, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. The word that God uses to describe his church in the New Testament is a Greek word that means assembly. Literally, he's insinuating, I would say explicitly saying, but at least insinuating that the church is properly the church when it is assembled. But what do we say? I need a few extra hours of sleep. It's not really convenient for me to go in. I need to meditate on this. We don't live because our physical needs of sleep or convenience are met, but because we have the word of God. And it might not fit into our schedules. We might have a number of other things we need to do, ways we need to make money, experiences we need to get for ourselves or our children, all sorts of things that come under this umbrella of physical life needs. We need to meditate on this. Because a human being does not live because their physical needs are met, but because they have the word of God. Satan then comes to Jesus with a second temptation. He leads him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. So let's analyze what's wrong with this temptation. Uh, the sneaky thing about this first, uh, second temptation, excuse me, is that what Satan says here is actually true. It's just not the whole truth. 
Um, It is true that Satan does have authority over the kingdoms of the world. Jesus says this multiple places in the Bible, that Satan is the prince of this age. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians says that he is the ruler of the kingdoms of the air. The Bible is very clear. Satan does have authority over the kingdoms of this world. And maybe then, just as an aside, that ought to make us very wary of the kingdoms of this world. We're called to be good citizens, to honor our government. But what we have to be honest about is that they are under the authority of Satan. And historically, this has played itself out. Every nation turns on Christianity eventually. And so while we are good citizens and we honor our government as much as it is possible, apart from the word of God, we are also very wary of them. We are skeptical of their power because they are under Satan's control. And by the way, this should press us deeper into the kingdom of God, shouldn't it? To not identify ourselves with some nation or political persuasion, but with the kingdom that is not of this world and never ends. The kingdom that is not working against the church, but is the church. That kingdom of God, which is present wherever God's word is preached and wherever his sacraments are administered. To press ourselves into something that's far more true than the machinations of world powers around us. But back to Satan. He he doesn't say anything necessarily wrong here, but he just doesn't say everything. Of course, if Jesus had worshipped Satan at this point, Satan probably could have given all of the authority of the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. I don't know that he would have. I mean, Satan's a liar anyways. Um, But I suppose he could have done that. But the, the next thing we have to ask ourselves is, why would Jesus give into this temptation when he really is truly supreme over all creation? Maybe you've been thinking that. You're like, Satan has authority over the kingdoms of this world? Well, doesn't God have authority over all things? Yes, he does. And in that sense, Satan is tempting Jesus to take something he already has. Satan tempts Jesus, if you worship me, I'll give you this thing, which of course is ultimately under Jesus' control. The third part of this temptation that is is wrong is that he offers power and control to Jesus rather than suffering. In a sense, he offers the easy way out to the end goal of Jesus' life. I mean, what is Jesus doing? He's coming as the Messiah of the whole world so that he can redeem the whole world and be the king of the whole world. And, well, Satan's offering him that same thing, just none of that cross or flogging or mocking business. You can have power and control. You can do it on your terms, Jesus. Of course, Jesus does not give in to this temptation, right? He says, it is written, you worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But how quickly we fall into these same temptations, right? We quickly fall into the temptation to hear what Satan says to us but not realize its larger implications. Probably the the best example of this is the terms and conditions, If you've ever signed up for a service or downloaded an app, you got this big, long, awkwardly worded document that you're supposed to agree to called the terms and conditions. How many of you have read the terms and conditions? Maybe one or two of us, right? We don't read that and yet we agree to it. I mean, a company could basically say, if you download this app, I get your first three children. We would have agreed to it. But that's exactly what Satan does. He says, do this. It'll be fine, but it's not. Do this, God will forgive you later, and he will, but that's an affront to God. Give in to this, no one will know. 
but God will. Satan loves not to tell the whole truth. In fact, this is the exact temptation he brought against Eve in the garden, right? If you eat this fruit, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And in a sense, he wasn't lying. She did know good and evil, experientially, because she became evil and knew the distance that she had from good. And she was like God, God of her own universe, without the resources to adequately fill the position. She was going to die. And don't we often fall into the temptation to be offered something that we already have? Like in Jesus, we've been given all the resources of the kingdom of heaven. We've been given acknowledgement and love and purpose and, and the promise of a life that never ends. And yet how quickly we give up those things for a pot of porridge. We look for companionship in the arms of someone who is not our spouse. Even though God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. We worry about our financial resources, even though God has said that anyone who gives up for the kingdom of God will receive a hundred times more in the life to come. We desire to be acknowledged, so we work at a job probably harder than we need to, be, need to even though Jesus has said, I write your name on the palms of my hand. Satan tempts us so often to, to want to grasp at something we already have in Jesus. And then finally, don't we fall into this temptation of being offered power and control to do things on our terms, the easy way, not the hard way. I want a quick fix. I want plug and play. I want this to not take too much time or too much money or too much energy. I just want the results without the hard work. We fall into this, don't we? And when it comes to control, doesn't every one of us believe that life would be a little bit better if I just had a little bit more control? I had a little bit more control of my kids or my spouse or my coworkers or my boss or my nation. And yet every one of us actually internally knows that's, that's hogwash. <laughs> like why are dictatorships bad? Because one guy has all the control and that usually doesn't work out well for most people. And yet we think that if we had a little bit more control, things would be different. Even if we weren't a dictator, wouldn't, wouldn't more control in our life actually make us less sensitive to the needs of the people around us? And yet Satan tempts us to that. Satan then gives a third temptation to Jesus. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, you can see he repeats that phrase again, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Okay, so what's wrong with this temptation? Um, there's really one big thing that Satan is doing here and it's taking scripture out of context. Right, he quotes Psalm 91 to Jesus and says, Jesus, you should be able to do this because the scriptures say. Now that should terrify every one of us. If Satan can quote scripture and quote scripture to deceive, then how can any of us know, any of us know what is true? This is why I press you so hard to be in the scriptures, to open your Bible with me when I pray, or excuse me, when I preach, because even though I'm, I'm so thankful that you trust me, I need you to stop that. Stop trusting me. I will work as hard as I can to bring you the true word of God, but if Satan can come and quote scripture to you in order to deceive you, I could do the same thing. I don't want to, but I could. And I'm a sinful person as well. And whether intentionally or unintentionally, I could do that. So we need to know scripture. If we knew scripture, particularly Psalm 91, 
we would know that Satan's taking out of context of this quote from Psalm 91 is actually almost hilarious. If you look at the, the text of Psalm 91, this is the verses that he's quoting. He says, or the psalm writer says, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in, your, in their hands so that you will not fight, strike your foot against a stone. The very next verse is this. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. You know who the great lion and the serpent are? Satan. Peter describes Satan as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In Genesis 3, the account of the fall into sin, who comes to tempt Eve? The serpent. Satan takes these verses that literally in the very next sentence condemn him and say that if you trust in God, you actually will trample over this accusing, lying Satan. Got to know the scriptures in context. But beyond this, actually historical evidence helps us understand that Psalm 91 was used by the historic church to be a prayer for exorcisms. When there was a belief that the demons were involved in a person's life, praying this psalm out loud would be one of the ways that they would try to drive out the demons. So how crazy is it that, that Satan quotes this passage to Jesus? Uh, by the way, as an aside, I, I wasn't sure exactly where to fit this into the sermon, but I think this is a good spot. This is why you should pray the psalms out loud. You should pray them out loud in your house because the demons hate God's word and when they hear God's word, they flee. The presence of God's word and the presence of demons cannot coexist. And the demons are present in all sorts of ways. We studied that last year in the gospel of Mark. So pray the Psalms out loud in your house. Pray Psalm 91 out loud in your house. If it feels weird, that's because of the demons. Last year when we studied Mark, I read a whole bunch of books on demonology just so that I could absorb what many other people think about the role that demons play in our lives. And one thing that was consistent across the authors that I read was um, that one of the uh, signs that a person is affected by a demon is they really struggle to read God's word. Just for a second, how many of, the, of us is that who struggle to read God's word? Now, I'm not saying you're all afflicted by the demons, but I'm not not saying that, which means we ought to pray. We ought to know God's word and pray God's word. Because how quickly can we be tempted to take a verse out of context or Satan can lead us to take a verse out of context, to go back to that one verse that really makes us feel good without looking at all the other things that God has said, whether it's about the future of my life or how I raise my children or how I interact with my government or whatever the case may be. These temptations are severe. Thank God for us, Jesus does not give in to the temptation. Right? He says, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. The last verse then of the text says that when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And that opportune time language is really interesting because as we look at the rest of the Gospel of Luke, we don't really see a place where Satan comes back to tempt Jesus again like this, do we? Or do we? Both Luke and Matthew who record this same text of the temptation of Jesus, record also that while Jesus was hanging on the cross, multiple groups of people came past him and said, if you are the son of God. Satan did not come back in the form that Jesus saw him here, but he did bring his temptations against Jesus again at a very opportune time. And yet you know as well as I do that Jesus did not give in, that he stayed on that cross that he died for our sins, 
They destroyed the power of the devil by his death. So I got four application points for you. They're on the bottom of your note sheet and they're fill in the blanks, but you can write in other things that you might want to write in uh, next to those application points. The first one for us to know is the vital, app, uh, vital role of scripture. As we look at this text, Jesus is only speaking scripture back to Satan. Jesus actually doesn't say anything else. He doesn't give any divine explanation or anything like that. He just says, this is what scripture says. Now you might be tempted to think, okay, well, Jesus is God and therefore he has like scripture hardwired into his brain or something like this. But if you actually look back a couple chapters at the story of Jesus in the temple as a 12 year old boy, which is in Luke's gospel, you see that Luke describes Jesus as growing in his knowledge of the scriptures and that he is asking questions of the teachers in the temple because Jesus was not just God, he was also completely human. And everything that he knew in a sense came from his experience and education. He made the scriptures a vital part of his life. This is also shown by Jesus, not just here with Satan, but on that cross that we described, where he's quoting scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Into your hands I commit my spirit. I am thirsty, which is an allusion to a text from Isaiah. Jesus just flowed scripture from his mouth. And I believe, although I can't necessarily prove this from the scripture, it's because he prayed the Psalms. You notice multiple times in Jesus' life, he goes off by himself to a quiet place to pray. What's he going to pray? The prayer book of the Bible. And it makes sense because if you look at all the things Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, he quotes the book of Psalms more than any other book. He prays the Psalms. He knows the Psalms. The Psalms are just part of how he interacts with the world. Now that might seem like a really high bar for you. (laughs) I understand. Getting into the Psalms, all 150 of them, that can seem like a challenge that will take years to accomplish. And you're probably right, but God gives you a lifetime to know the scriptures. So start like this. If you're not regularly praying the Psalms, pick one Psalm and pray it every day. Just keep praying it, keep praying it, keep praying it, and watch how it presses itself into your life, makes itself obvious to you in the situations that you go through. And I bet that if you keep doing that, praying one every day, that same one every day, eventually you'll know it well enough that your eyes will start to look at the one that's next to it on either side and start to read through that one. And if you don't understand something that's in the psalm right away, just keep reading. You'll figure it out. You can ask a question. The Holy Spirit wants you to know Scripture. Put your nose in Scripture. Second application point, Satan tempts us with good things. What does Satan offer Jesus? Food, right? It's a good thing. He actually doesn't outright lie. He actually tells Jesus something true in his second temptation and even quotes scripture to him in his third temptation. These are all good things, right? That's exactly how Satan likes to work, especially with Christians. Notice Satan doesn't come to Jesus with mountains of money and prostitutes and substances to get high on. He doesn't do that because that's not what works. That's far too easy. It's far too easy to decline the offer. So Satan works in these subtle ways where he tempts us with something good and tempts us to love it just a little too much. I want our church to be a place where we're open to confess these things. So let me give you a couple examples from my life. I love cross of life and the gospel, sometimes too much. Where I am harsh on myself as a pastor, I am harsh on you as my parishioners. Where I 
I build my self-worth based on how many people are here for communion or for worship or joining our church or watching online. And I'm devastated when those things aren't as high as I think they should be. Because even though the gospel and this congregation are a great thing, sometimes I love them too much. My kids are another example. My kids are great. And I really want to parent them well, especially in an era in our world's history where fatherhood is basically non-existent. But because I sometimes want that a little too much, I'm harsh on them or discipline them, not because I actually want their behavior to change, but because I want to look good. I love that really good thing a little too much. And I bet every one of you could look at something in your life that you love a little too much. It may be a good thing, but it's too high of a priority. In fact, if we were to sit down across the table and we were to, you were to tell me about all the problems in your life, I've gotten pretty good at this as a pastor now for a little while, I bet we could figure out the thing that you love a little too much that's causing that problem. Third application point then, nowhere is safe from Satan except the word of God. Do you see where the last temptation happens? On the corner of the temple, at church. Satan is not above tempting us when we are doing some of the most spiritual things we might be able to do in our life. When we're preaching, when we're at church, when we're in conversation with fellow Christians, when we're representing our church to the community, nowhere is safe. I think we need to be honest about that, especially at this moment in time when it is so easy for us to divide over things that are not God's word, to be angry at one another and to to post something against somebody else maybe on Facebook or or Instagram or Twitter or something like this because they don't agree with us, even though that has very little to do with God's word. Satan loves that. And that needs to stop. Nowhere is safe from Satan, especially places like this, because you know what Satan loves to do? He loves to tempt you into falling into sins that you never believed you would have fallen into and then holding it against you. Can you believe what you did at church? You call yourself a Christian, you call yourself a pastor, you call yourself a leader. Nowhere is safe from Satan except the word of God, which is what Jesus shows us, right? He goes back to the word of God time and time again. And we ought to as well. Which brings us to the last application point, which is Jesus in our place. Um, Most times I've heard this text preached, it is preached as sort of a psychoanalysis of Satan, or it is a strategy for how to beat temptation. And to some extent, up to this point in the sermon, that's pretty much what I've done, but I cannot leave you with the actual heart and core of this text, which is that Jesus took your place. As we go through these sins and the temptations that Satan gives us, every one of us should be on our knees because we have no chance of living up to God's law. We have no chance of defeating Satan in temptation. We fall time and time again, despite the fact that we maybe have been Christians our entire life, but the grace of God is that that is not credited to your account because Jesus has gone through it for you and done it perfectly and given it to you. You are saved, you are righteous, you are loved by God, not because of your work, but because of Christ's work. Not because of your obedience, but because of Christ's obedience. Not because of your ability to deny Satan, but because of Jesus' ability to deny Satan. Because Jesus was extraordinary, you are free to be ordinary. Because Jesus was a full success, you are free to be a failure. You are free to walk out of here as a messed up person who is saved by a perfect God. That's the heart of this text. Jesus standing in the place where we could not hope to stand, doing everything perfectly, and then giving us credit for it. 
And then walking with us through the struggle that we have against Satan. A high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weakness, but has been tempted every way as we have, and yet he was without sin. He can give us strength by his Holy Spirit to defeat Satan's temptations. But let that never come before the message of this text. Jesus is for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we quickly can make this text about ourselves and how we can improve our lives or improve our strategies to defeat Satan. Banish that thought from our hearts. Help us to see a humility that we are no stronger than Satan. That if it weren't for your power and your provision, we would give in every time. And often we do. So press on our hearts the gospel that because you were perfect in our place, our sinfulness has been taken away, that we walk out of this building free, loved, acknowledged, purposeful, not because of our effort, but yours. And I ask that that attitude would breed a a sense of unity in our congregation when so many things are pulling us apart, telling us to draw lines based on what we might think about science or about politics, Remind us that we are all sinful by nature, unable to be good enough for you, and yet all saved by Jesus. I ask that in your name. Amen.